Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello and welcome to New Scientist Weekly, the podcast that brings you the week's biggest news in science. I'm Rowan Hooper. I'm our podcast editor. And I'm Tiffany O'Callaghan. I'm our features editor. Joining us this week is New Scientist reporter Claire Wilson and special guest science writer and podcaster Michael Brooks. Hello. Hello. Coming up on the show, we're looking at what we know about different dosing regimes for coronavirus vaccines. And we're going to hear about the latest in superconductor technology. Superconductors are one of the holy grails of physics. Actually, there are a lot of holy grails of physics around. (laughs) This is one of them. We're also going to hear about some futuristic zero-carbon cities being planned and possibly even built soon. And our Australia reporter, Donna Liu, has a story on coral reef restoration. And there's a monster life form of the week. Uh, Yeah, but before we get into that, we must tell you about a special January offer that's still available to you as a listener to our podcast. You can get New Scientist for half price for 12 weeks woohoo <laughs> yes 12 weeks for half price it's an absolute bargain go to newscientist.com slash pod 12 to find out more and to subscribe you get all the benefits of the premium content in the magazine plus access to the treasures in the archive newscientist.com slash pod 12 right and now we turn to the physical sciences and the hunt for superconductors As you said before, Rowan, this is one of the holy grails of physics. A superconductor is a material that conducts electricity without resistance. And we're getting closer to a room temperature superconductor. Michael, you've written a big story on this in this week's magazine. Can you tell us what a superconductor is and why it would be so transformative to have one that works at room temperature? Yeah, so um, as you said, it... it uh, conducts electricity without resistance and resistance it, it creates heat and it's a, as a means of losing energy so so if you can have something that where the electricity flows unimpeded you know absolutely just at will what you have is perfect power transport and perfect energy transport so you would be able to create all kinds of sort of technological equipment that didn't have huge problems so one of the things is uh having magnets so you know you, you have magnets that um they're powered by electricity uh, you wind them into coils you create these intense magnetic fields but with a superconducting magnet you actually have a much much higher intensity field uh, if you have a superconducting wire you can send uh, electricity across the country without power losses uh, and and there's sort of various great sort of um, applications but it all comes down to kind of microscopic properties of these materials so we we already use superconductors in the magnets that you kind of talk about at very low temperatures and things like MRI scanners and stuff, right? 
Yeah, so so the hospital MRI machines have these you know high power magnets that are uh, superconducting. But they have to work at like four kelvins, so you know minus two hundred and sixty nine degrees C. So you have to cool them with uh, liquid helium, and that obviously you know makes it incredibly sort of um, impractical to have these things sort of out in the community, as it were. One thing that kind of really bugs my mind out about the this thing is it a room temperature superconductor seems to be almost magical. It seems to like to have this free transport of electricity. It seems to sort of avoid a rule of physics, doesn't it? That, you know, we expect there to be some loss of in heat or something. But yeah. To get, I mean, I mean, to get it without that is really weird. Yeah, well, I mean, physicists are well used to the kind of no pain, no gain idea. But yeah. but actually, it is theoretically possible to have superconductors that work at room temperature. You just have to find the right material. So obviously, we use copper wires and copper is the sort of you know best practical conductor we've got. But actually, you know, you can use various different materials and cool them to different temperatures to get a superconductor. And, you know, some of the good ones work at liquid nitrogen temperatures at 77K. So what we want is a room temperature one. And this seems possible. And, and the feature I wrote is about a breakthrough last year where we managed to get one that works at 14 Celsius. Um, so that's almost room temperature if you turn yeah. off the central heating. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's a bit chilly it's, for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, it's not ideal, but it's almost there. Um, the only problem is that in order to get that superconductivity, you have to squeeze the material really hard. So you put it between two diamonds, effectively, and just wind them closer and closer together until you've got pressures equivalent to you know the pressure near the Earth's core. So obviously, oh. that's not practical <laughs> in terms of making technology. But what the kind of theory and the experiment are now working together to show that actually there are ways in which we might be able to do uh, this kind of thing but without the pressure so so you know there is hope that we might finally after all these years and and we first discovered superconductivity like in 1911 so you know more than 100 years ago um and and so we're sort of hoping that that you know we might be at that point now and we've had this hope before, but it, this one seems a bit more real where, you know, we might have room temperature superconductors and, you know, not have to put these ridiculous pressures on them and thus be able to kind of really sort of create a transformative technology. Are these room temperature superconductor people in league with the nuclear fusion people? Because, they, you know, that's been going on for decades as well. <laughs> no, we're almost there. We're, we're really almost there. Uh, I can see why you would say that. I mean, interestingly, uh, the the fusion people need superconducting magnets in order to control their... <laughs> they are in league so, then. Yeah. So they are, are kind of in league. But, I, you know, I have more hope of the superconductors than possibly I do of fusion in the next sort of 40 years. Um, you mentioned the trains. Um and I saw there was a new maglev train in China, which it says it uses high temperature superconductors and can reach speeds of 620 kilometers per hour, which is absolutely mind blowing. I went on the, the maglev from Shanghai Airport and that got to 430 kilometers per hour. I mean, that was fast enough, but 620, <laughs> incredible. So when they say a high temperature superconductor, they still, uh, you know, they still mean below 14 degrees C, actually, don't they? Unfortunately, yes. So that's cooled by liquid nitrogen. And the idea is that you just have, you know, you can have these magnets that are made from superconductors that, that work sort of uh, below 77 Kelvin. And it's it's good. And it, like you say, I mean, it's incredible speeds you can achieve because you just lift the train off the track using the magnets. And, and so you don't have that friction resistance. I mean, it's an expensive way to, to sort of produce a, a transport system. Obviously, you know, it's you need whole new infrastructure, for instance, 
instance. And Japan has been trying for you know decades to really get one of these things off the ground, as it were. Sorry about that. <laughs> um, but um, you're you're also you've got the problem of air resistance. So that once you're moving at those kinds of speeds, yeah, it's, the the air resistance, the friction from the air is so strong as well that the friction from the ground becomes you know not really your biggest problem. So there's lots of sort of you know feedback loops that make maglev trains quite difficult and difficult business case and i read something uh, yesterday where the the japanese trains have come across a new problem which is that uh, in lockdown people have realized that all these businessmen who would be traveling from osaka to tokyo or whatever and want to do it in an hour on a maglev train they've realized they can just use zoom and have zoom <laughs> online meetings <laughs> so the, the kind of business case has dropped away for for this kind of high-speed transport so turning to computer design, I, I'm sure everyone saw Arnold Schwarzenegger's video about the US, well, about US democracy. Yes. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, I can't have been the only one. I was waiting for him to say something from Terminator, but he <laughs> actually went with Conan the Barbarian. But, you know, Terminator is probably his most famous role. And, and, and that robot, the T-800, that apparently that has a room temperature superconductor in its CPU. So, you know, it made me wonder, Michael, what could what would computer design be like with a room temperature superconductor? So it's really interesting. I mean, it's, it's another sort of science fiction, you know, becomes reality thing. But the idea of having a superconductor in your computer is that you just avoid all these problems of heat loss effectively and heat generation. So moving electrons around in electronics and in electrical circuits, as we said, generates heat. You know, you lose the energy because of the resistance. So you can operate these kinds of computers with much less heat, so ne- less need for cooling, more efficient, you know, faster information transfer. And the big step really would be for quantum computers, you know, which, you know, we've written about a lot. And and they actually use, so Google's, you know, quantum computer uses a superconducting qubit. Uh, it's, it's based on a superconducting processor. So um, if, and one of the big problems with that, of course, is you have to cool it. And, and it makes it very difficult to operate these things sort of in any large scale format. But if you had room temperature superconductors, then you, you transform the, the potential of superconducting quantum computers. And that's, you know, that's a really exciting prospect. The other really interesting thing is the exciting thing is for batteries and for electricity storage, isn't it? As you mentioned, and, and transfer transmission of electricity across long distances in the grid. Um, so, you know, superconductors would really change the game for renewable energy. I think it would. Um, the problem we've got with the the ones that work at liquid nitrogen at the temperatures at the moment are they're really brittle and it's really hard to make wires. You know, it's really hard to create a proper, usable, cheap technology from them because they're expensive as well. But if you could develop a room temperature superconductor that was you know pliable, malleable that you could draw into wires, then you know you change you know the energy loss across the sort of the grid as you as you transport electricity around the country from the, the you know the power generation to where we use it. But also, I mean, the the big thing would be that you can set up basically superconducting batteries where you just put the electricity into the into the superconducting battery and it stores it uh, without any loss at all. So you don't have any problems with sort of storing it effectively forever. So then if you've got, you know, renewables, you've got offshore wind or whatever, and you're producing power at a time when it's not being used, you can literally just, you know, take that power, store it and then, you know, drain it off when it needs to be used. So it's, it's that's a real game changer. And now it's time for Life Form of the Week. What have you got for us this week, Rowan? 
I'm trying not to sing the theme to it. Baby sharks, baby sharks. <laughs> yeah, baby sharks. Uh, actually, not, and they're not ordinary sharks. They're 20 meter long megalodon sharks. 20 meters long? Yeah. Uh, I should say they're extinct now. Uh, <laughs> megalodons were around about 3.6 million years ago. And so because of that, we don't know much about their biology and especially about baby sharks. But we do baby now. Shark <laughs> uh, yeah, we do. So researchers in Chicago have looked at the spine of a megalodon that died when it was 46 years old. And we know that because, you know, like trees have growth rings around their trunks, megalodons have growth bands. And also knowing, using these growth bands, they've estimated that the newborn megalodons were around two metres long at birth. That is enormous. Yeah. Like, how, so how do they grow so large even before being born? Aha, well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> and this is the amazing thing. Uh, the, the baby megalodons, uh, well, they, they eat their egg, the eggs of their mother while they're still inside her. Wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. wait. Sorry, they eat their siblings? Yeah, they eat their unhatched siblings. It's a phenomenon called interuterine cannibalism. Uh, so <laughs> yeah. they must have been very, very hungry. Is it only megalodons that may have done this? Are there other species that munch their siblings in this yeah, way? Yeah, yeah. It's a that's what sharks do, really. A lot of uh, a lot of sharks do it, and certainly in this family of sharks, even in the present day. Um, our reporter Karina Shah has a piece on this in the in the mag this week. Uh, and if you do fancy looking on YouTube, uh, there's a lot of really mad videos of uh, sharks fighting and each, eating each other in the womb. Wow. I'm not sure I dare watch. I am <laughs> definitely on that at 10.45. Yeah. Oh, God. And I thought my sister was annoying. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's ruined baby sharks for me. Rowan, this has been a pretty big week for you. Not only is your new book out this week, How to Spend a Trillion Dollars, which you, I didn't know you had such a flush bank account. But, <laughs> Thanks for the plug, Tiff. How much did Rowan pay you to say that? <laughs> Less than a trillion, I bet. Yeah, no kidding. Um, but not only that, but you're also launching a brand new podcast for new scientists. Hello and welcome to the Escape Pod. Your flight will last about 15 minutes, and we expect no turbulence, just a smooth, smooth ride. Yes, this is a new lockdown podcast from New Scientist. This podcast will not include any references to coronaviruses or other unpleasant happenings on the planet below. There are plenty of other places you can find out about that. Instead... This is about escapism. Sit back, relax, and let us whisk your mind away, well, to pretty much anything that will inspire and distract you. Coming up next week, we'll be talking about self-awareness and theory of mind in dolphins and whales, the incredible things that dancers and gymnasts are able to do without blacking out, and here we're going to have to mention the legendary Simone Biles and her triple-double at the Olympics, We'll also be talking about the Chinese board game Go and how there are more moves in the game than there are atoms in the universe. Do join us on The Escape Pod, a lockdown podcast from New Scientist to take your mind away from the relentless news cycle 
and to brighten up your week. Tickets are free. See you there. Now let's talk about coral. Coral loss is one of the biggest biodiversity problems we're facing at the moment and it's something that's a bit overlooked, um, certainly in countries that don't have a lot of coral. But you know, corals support about a quarter of all marine species and they provide ecosystem services in the form of food supply and coastal protection to about 850 million people around the world who live near them. And they're in massive trouble. 93% of extra heat generated by global warming has gone into the ocean and about one third of the CO2. And this is killing off coral in huge swathes. Yeah. So to investigate this, we sent our Australia reporter Donna Liu to Heron Island on the Great Barrier Reef. Ah, so nice. (laughs) So jealous. Yeah, it doesn't bear thinking about. It's a beautiful tropical island there. I'm surprised she actually left. So anyway, I had a chat with her earlier. Hey, Donna, I'm very sorry you had to go on that terrible work trip to that tropical island. How how was it? (laughs) Oh, awful. You know, you know, marine life everywhere, far too sunny. (laughs) Uh, Um, In serious note, there were a lot of people getting seasick on the boat ride to the island. So it wasn't all entirely pleasant, but I, I did feel very lucky to get there. Okay, so uh, you went up to Heron Island. Uh, you were going to meet researchers who were working on projects there to to reseed new corals back onto the reef. So tell us about that. I went up just after the corals had spawned and a group of biologists had collected some of the slicks of coral spawn into uh, these big nets for incubating. Yeah, sounds quite disgusting. Uh, but look, look, better recap. Why corals spawn? Because it's easy to forget, actually, that they spawn, isn't it? Uh, So corals are uh, animals, invertebrates, and they can reproduce asexually. Um, They they bud or fragment from parent polyps, uh, and they also reproduce sexually. So they, they spawn once a year, and various coral species release sperm and eggs en masse in trillions of small balls that rise to the surface and, and open up, uh, resulting in fertilised larvae. On the outer reefs off the east coast of Australia, that happens a few nights after the full moon in late November or early December usually. And these larvae form these slicks on the surface of a vivid pink uh, or orange and they, they drift around on the ocean surface for days to weeks until they eventually attach themselves to hard surfaces underwater and begin forming new colonies. Okay, and so the researchers on Heron Island, they've been collecting, so you're saying they collect it all in this massive net, they're collecting it to try and boost the success of spawning. Yes, that's exactly what they're doing. So I went up there with Professor Peter Harrison uh, from Southern Cross University and his team. And Harrison was one of the researchers who initially discovered these mass spawning events on the Great Barrier Reef in the 1980s, in the early 80s. And since then, he's been researching coral reproduction uh, and restoration ever since. Uh, Here's Harrison explaining the process of reseeding when I spoke to him on Heron Island. So we only take a very small amount of the surface slicks, way less than one-tenth of one percent, and then we transfer the spawn across into my floating larval nursery pools. And these consist of very fine mesh 
in an inflatable container just to keep them above the water and allow the seawater to flow through the fine mesh but to retain the larvae in a safe environment during their development. So the second phase of the larval restoration process is to culture millions of larvae in these floating nursery pools. The larvae need about five or seven days to develop until they become well-developed enough to settle on a reef system. And the third phase of the project is to target the delivery of the coral larvae back onto damaged sections of the reef, which no longer have enough live corals. What we know from various experiments we've done here on the Great Barrier Reef and in the Philippines is that if we increase the rates of larvae that are delivered onto the reef system, we can enhance the rate of larval settlement and therefore recruitment and start the recovery of the coral communities. Uh, it's lovely to hear the sound of birdsong on a tropical island. It takes me far away. Uh, so look, tell us why these coral larvae need human help, Donna. So Harrison estimates that only one in a million coral larvae will become an adult coral. Uh, Some die naturally, some get eaten by plankton or fish, and others are carried by currents into waters that are simply too cold. So by increasing the number of larvae that settle on reef systems where they can thrive, the researchers are hoping to speed up the reef regeneration process, which is particularly crucial given that the Great Barrier Reef has suffered uh, three mass bleaching events in the past five years. Yeah, so bleaching is the big problem, isn't it? Because coral have these partnerships with these with these photosynthetic organisms and basically the, the plants give the the corals energy from the sun in return for a nice place to live but if the water gets too hot the coral expel these partners these uh, zooxanthellae organisms so yeah as you're saying the the bleaching has been really bad for the adult corals but what what do we know about how the heat waves the marine heat waves have been affecting the larvae of these spawning corals What we know is that the ideal temperature for larvae along the Great Barrier Reef is between 26 and 28 degrees Celsius. And at warmer temperatures, uh, the same that result in adult corals bleaching, the larvae won't settle. And I guess bleaching is also a a double whammy. Uh, This week, I also spoke with a researcher of a new study which found that, that warmer temperatures, so those high enough to bleach corals, also makes them less resilient to ocean acidification. Um, So as carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere increase, the amount the ocean takes up also increases. So climate change is this real existential threat and it's going to take really significant concerted effort if we want to save coral reefs. And we only have about 30 years to do so. Yeah, and that's what Peter Harrison is really trying to do now. I, I can't imagine how the reef must have changed in the what, 40 years since he's been working on the Great Barrier Reef. You know, back then the reef must have been really thriving. And now in in his career, he's just seen it crashing down. So what he's trying to do now is boost the success of the reef and, and of seeding. Yeah, and, and what, one of the things they are doing uh, are using spawn from reefs that have survived these bleaching events in recent years. So the hope is that the coral offspring will actually be more resistant to heat stress. But of course, it will be to no avail if we don't get climate change under control. That's our sci-fi alert, which means we've got something in the news that's already been in science fiction. Rowan, what have we got this week? This week, Prince Mohammed bin Salman, who's the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, 
Uh, he unveiled plans for a new city, a zero carbon city on the Red Sea coast. Ooh, a fancy new future city. Yeah, it's uh, it's all part of Saudi plans to try and diversify their economy and basically to wean themselves off of oil. And they say that this new city, which is called the Line, uh, will be powered by 100% clean energy and will house a million people. And we've written quite a lot about future cities down the years, haven't we? Yeah, most recently there was the wood one that um, Graham Lawson did the, about the role of wood in building sustainable cities. Yeah, that feature was all about how sort of processed wood can be used now, can be you know strong enough to build skyscrapers. And that's really exciting because you could build a whole city from entirely sustainable resources. Yeah, and that's what we're going to need to do more and more. Uh, another recent feature we had about the world population showed it's going to reach, what, 9.8 billion by 2050. Uh, and, you know, all these people, you know, nearly 10 billion people are going to need somewhere to live and they have to be living in a sustainable carbon zero way. And the idea is that city living might be the best way to do it because you have to keep a lot of land free for agriculture to feed all of these people and for natural ecosystems and sort of dense city living done sustainably allows you to do that. Yeah. So that's why I was interested in this Saudi mega project. Uh, there's another one as well, um, the R&B star Akon. He's got his own plans for a future city in Senegal that he's partnered He's partnered with the Senegal government for this and private investors to build a smart city, solar powered on the coast of Senegal, about 60 miles from the capital. It's a bit less clear about what's going on with this Akon city because uh, not much has been made public, but there's a US engineering firm on board and at least the artist's impressions look very nice. And there are other sort of similar proposed future city projects going on uh, elsewhere across Africa, aren't there? Yeah, the one um, people talk about most is called the Mwale Medical and Technological City in Kenya. Uh, and that's really cool because it's a community-owned sustainable city or a metropolis, and it's all centred around a hospital complex. That's really, it's a really interesting place. Is it a problem that the other proposed future cities, the Saudi city and Akon city, are actually being built on the coast? Because, you know, if it's a future city, is that particularly well protected against sea level rise? Yeah, I, I did wonder about this as well. And with Akon city, the blurb says uh, it's an extension of the sea into the land with waves going into the roots of buildings. So I don't know, maybe the, there are water defences as part of the design. Is that the sci-fi link? Uh, no, it's not actually. And this one just has written itself. Akon uh, literally said he wants to base his city on Wakanda, uh, the future mega city in Black Panther, the Marvel movie. And now to coronavirus. There are now 92 million recorded cases of coronavirus globally, and there have been almost 2 million deaths. In the UK, we've had the largest increase in excess deaths since the Second World War. Now, scientists have always said that vaccines are the only way out of this, ultimately, and now they are finally being rolled out. Yes, um, with infection levels so high and hospitals struggling to keep up with the demand, it's a race to get the virus under control as quickly as possible, both using control measures like lockdowns and ramping up vaccination. All of the vaccines approved so far require two doses, which were originally intended to be given either three or four weeks apart. But to speed things up, the UK has decided to prioritise getting the first dose into more people faster and delay giving the second dose. Now other countries are following this lead. 
Claire, you reported on this for the magazine this week. Will this strategy undermine how well the vaccines work? Well, that is the worry that some experts have. Um, For instance, the US Food and Drug Administration has said that uh, not following the timetables the vaccines were uh, originally intended to have could place public health at risk. And other scientists around the world have voiced similar concerns. Yikes, that sounds that doesn't sound good at all. Well, no. And if we were in a situation where we had plenty of vaccine to go around, it wouldn't be a strategy that the UK would pursue, undoubtedly. But given the circumstances that we're in, the very dire straits that we're in, um, on Wednesday, the UK daily death rate reached uh, over 1,500 deaths in a single day. So that's obviously terrible. The need to get infections down is really urgent. Can we be confident that using the vaccine this way, you know, prioritising getting a first jab to as many people as possible sooner will actually help us get things under control? Well, it should do. So the chief medical officers of the UK are recommending this approach for for that reason, because it could help us provide more protection to more people and ultimately prevent more deaths. So how well does the initial shot or jab work, sort of even before the booster is given? Well, the evidence from the trials of the three vaccines that have been approved so far in the UK from um, Pfizer-BioNTech, Moderna and the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccines, uh, they show that within a couple of weeks of of just getting your first jab, the efficacy of the vaccine at preventing disease symptoms, it ranges from around 70 to 90 percent. That sounds pretty good. So, So what's the worry here? Do we really need boosters at all? Ideally, you do, because getting the booster after one month, as originally intended, is likely to increase the protection given and make that immunity last for longer, too. But with the UK now delaying the second jab to 12 weeks, the reasoning behind it is that the great majority of the initial protection from disease comes after the first dose of the vaccine. And you only get a a little bit of an increase in protection from the second dose. So if you manage to immunise a large number of people in the next three months with a first dose, that is better than reaching only half that number with two doses to give them only slightly greater protection. So are there any other concerns about tinkering with the timing in this way? Yes. So there have been some concerns voiced that um, maybe fewer people will end up getting both doses because they just forget to come back in or the health system gets too disorganized to invite them back in after a longer length of time. Um, Another concern is that the UK has has been accused of being uh, too willing to mix and match vaccines. Uh, you know, getting uh, your first dose of the Pfizer jab and then your second dose of the AstraZeneca jab. Would that be a really big problem? Well, the controversy is, is that this isn't how the vaccines were, were tested in their trials. And the mechanisms that different vaccines use to promote an immune response are slightly different. So could you ultimately end up with less protection if they did mix and match, give you one jab of one kind and the second of another? It is theoretically possible, but um, when we look at what happens with other vaccines that have been tested in the past, for instance, against HIV uh, and malaria, there is some evidence that having a mixing and matching approach like that actually could provide better protection by prompting a stronger immune response. Oh, wow. So that would be a bit of a silver lining if we had to go that route. It would, but um, this is all a bit of a red herring, actually, because I think the UK has been unfairly accused of being uh, too willing to go down the mix and match route. Actually, all that the authorities have said is that they will mix and match if you absolutely have to, because somebody is 
due to receive their second jab, it's 12 weeks after their first one, and say local supplies have run out of the type they initially received. So it's not something they're actually going to strive to do. It's just going to be used as a last resort. Uh, Just to go back to the, the gap between the two doses, in lots of other vaccines, there is a big gap, isn't there, between doses? So uh, is there any reason we we should be that worried about having a gap, a big gap with this one as well? Yeah, you're right. So they do already. Um, there, are, there are many vaccines that are given with a boost that you require a booster jab for. And you typically have um, quite a space between them. So the MMR jab, for instance, has a few years between the doses. The HPV jab given to teenage girls and boys to prevent cervical cancer and other forms, that has up to two years between doses. So it's not like this 12-week delay is anything completely radical that we've never been done before. It's just that that's not the way they were intended to be tested in the clinical trials. Well, they had to test them as quickly as possible, right, I guess? Well, exactly. So we couldn't test a regime for the new coronavirus vaccines that had a two-year gap between it because we had to get these vaccines out uh, into clinical use as fast as possible. So um, to summarise, it is quite possible that a longer delay between shots is fine or even slightly better. There was even a hint of that in the data from the AstraZeneca vaccine trial However, we don't know for sure until that strategy has been tested properly in randomised trials in large numbers of people. So it's fair to say the best thing for an individual would be to stick to the original schedule of having the vaccines in that that much shorter time frame. However, the best thing for a population is to get the first dose to twice as many people over this very crucial first three months and using the delayed schedule. I actually think it's quite a brave move by the UK authorities to to take this because it logically makes sense. Thanks, Claire. Um, And look, right before we wrap up today, I wanted to mention something I saw from Virunga National Park in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Virunga, as you probably know, it's home to some of the last remaining mountain gorillas. They're critically endangered. Uh, This is one of it's one of the most important biodiversity sites on Earth, really. And on Saturday, January the 10th, six park rangers there were killed by an armed militia group. And I spoke with one of the people who helps run the Virunga Alliance. Uh, this is this is an alliance that helps protect the park and, and allows people who live near there uh, to live sustainably. Um, and he said the militia are fighting, these militia groups are fighting to gain control over poaching rights and also over charcoal, which is widely used as fuel. And it's just that, you know, about 150 rangers have been killed over the years in this way and I wanted to mention it because they're doing this unbelievably difficult and dangerous job you know for very little pay and it's about safeguarding this area that's of huge global importance Uh, and I just wish that some rich countries would help out more you know or maybe some billionaires would put their hands in their pockets and and help support local people in the region and, and help this alliance and protect this national park this vital national park that's that's the end of my rant that's all for now thanks for joining us claire and michael and thanks to you all for listening and just before we go remember you can get a subscription to new scientist for 12 weeks at half price go to newscientist.com slash pod 12 for more information and do spread the word about our show goodbye for now and take care out there bye bye This podcast is produced by Oligiu Podcast Production. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.